Well, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And uh, this morning, as we continue in our series called Presence, uh, we've looked at Romans uh, 5, Romans 7, Romans 8. We're not looking at every passage in the book of Romans, but we're, we're taking snapshots of this book, and we are looking at what it means to live in the supernatural presence of God. And this morning, we want to talk about what do you do to prepare to encounter the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I just want to say that most of us prepare for relationships. Cindy and I got married on May 12, 1979. And like a lot of couples, we had premarital counseling. That premarital counseling was, was good. It was done by two different pastors, and it involved taking some tests. And so we did the counseling, got married, lived happily ever after. No, not so much. We had the same challenges everybody else had. That preparation was just like the very basics that we needed to move into our marriage. Mar relationships are so significant that it takes preparation to ensure the success of those relationships. Same thing happened when our daughter Sarah was born. Uh, we were very, I'd say, hyper-prepared. Sarah came into our life 18 months after we got married. And uh, for, in the months leading up to that, we took childbirth classes, we prepared the crib, we prepared the room, we, we painted, we did all these things, you know. We had a mobile hanging over her, her crib, you know. It was, we were prepared. Why, why, do you do, why do you do that? Relationships are important. And one of the ways you, you, uh, you honor the importance of relationships is through preparation. We prepared for our grandkids coming. Now, these days, it's a lot easier to buy grandchild stuff because of Amazon and the internet. You get to see it. You know, oh, I think she'd really like that. Uh, that preparation involved trips to England, multiple trips to England, multiple trips to Seattle, a trip to Africa. We, we prepared for those relationships. And in the same way that we try to prepare for our earthly relationships because they're so important, it's also really important that we prepare for an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so um, Romans 8.1 really is an example of what it means to prepare. So let me, let me read to you how this, uh, the, the background, uh, the context. Paul finishes Romans 7, he says, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Then he, then he has a, a change in, in, in tone, in mood. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. He points out this tension that we have between wanting to do the right but often doing the wrong. What's going to resolve that tension? Well, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, 
but walk according to the Spirit. Now, I wanted to read that whole passage because I want you to notice what happens at the end. He gives us this amazing vision. He says, folks, out there, there is this new community of people who don't walk according to the flesh, but they walk according to the Spirit. Paul might as well be saying, you Romans, you people from Bartlesville, I want you to be a member of that community who no longer walks according to the flesh. I want you to be people who walk according to the Spirit. He'd say that same thing to Grace Community Church. He'd say that same thing to me. He'd say, I, I want you to be part of this new community that is not walking according to the flesh and encountering, encountering habitual failure, but people who are walking according to the Spirit. And so how do, how do we prepare to do that? This is a passage about preparing to encounter the Spirit. Well, the first thing that we do is that we, is that we um, totally embrace our no-condemnation status. If we want to en encounter the Spirit, one of the things that has to be a regular part of our life is that we encounter this no-condemnation status that we have. What does that mean? What does no-condemnation mean? The obvious meaning is legal. It's a, it's a legal category. Romans 8.1 means that we are permanently justified. We have encountered a once-for-all shift called justification by faith. That means we have the full and final acceptance of the God of the universe. Our legal standing is firm. It's set. It will not change. He will never reject us. Now, to get you, give you a feel for the importance of this, I, I want to take you back to uh, the 1800s. The figure on your left is well known to you. It's John Adams. John Adams was one of our founding fathers, president of the United States. John Adams was uh, presented in David McCulloch's book, uh, by the name John Adams, and there was a miniseries. And uh, the miniseries has this riveting scene in the series where John Adams is president of the United States. He finds out that his son, Charles, is an alcoholic living in the slums of Philadelphia. And John Adams goes to his son's house. It is in squalor. And he has his cane, and he bangs his cane down on the table. He says, I renounce you. I renounce you. What does that do to a, a son? I renounce you. Father says to his son, we're done. I renounce you. It has to be among the most painful things you can experience. And a lot of followers of Jesus Christ say, will God ever do that with me? If I make a mistake, if I descend into a habit, if I descend into a lifestyle, will the God of the, ever, of the, of the universe take his metaphorical cane and smack it down in front of me and say, I renounce you, I renounce you? That's an important question. And the truth of Romans 8.1 is that that will never happen. 
Because the truth of justification by faith is that God makes a permanent legal pronouncement that he will never go back on. And that pronouncement is a pronouncement you are not guilty of all the sins of your past, whatever's happening now in the present, and all the sins in your future. But it's not just being pronounced not guilty, it's also that God pronounces you righteous. The incredible thing in justification by faith is that he also says, I am now crediting you with the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is a permanent declaration in God, wholly independent of choices that we make in the future. It is settled in the courts of heaven. God says, you are not guilty, you are righteous, and that is a declaration made in God. Now, can we just pause and bask in that for a moment? Is that an incredible concept? You know, we, we like to say that there is this category called unconditional love. And we have this category for it, but in actual fact, none of us has ever really fully encountered it because we, we're human. We grow up in families that are human and fallen. We, our, our, our family members could be the greatest people on the face of the earth, the greatest human beings ever. And yet, their love for us is still going to be imperfect. Truth be told, we've encountered snatches of unconditional love, but never the lavish, generous, abundant love that God offers to us in justification by faith. But that's, that's the, the place in which you stand. You have been declared not guilty. You have been declared righteous. You are unconditionally loved by the God of the universe forever. That's an amazing concept. Justification by faith begins as a legal concept, but we don't stop there. Because justification by faith, uh, uh, no condemnation uh, involves something else. No condemnation, Romans 8.1, involves something else. F.F. F. Bruce, the trusted New Testament scholar, points out that no condemnation also has the meaning of no penal servitude. So think about penal servitude. Penal servitude is having justice be given, and then you still have to feel bad about it. Penal servitude is serving out a sentence. Penal servitude is continuing to feel guilty about something that you did that was forgiven, already forgiven. And what no condemnation means is that it's not only legal, but it means that there is no penal servitude that goes along with your justification by faith. Now, some of you have had the experience of being disciplined as a child. And when that discipline was over, you still felt bad. There was an angry scowl that your mom gave to you. There was an angry silence that your dad gave to you. So you knew that even though your mom and dad probably forgave you, there was still a sense of penal servitude. There was a dark cloud that hung over that relationship. And that dark cloud might last for an hour, might last for two hours, might last for a week, but that dark cloud is still there. That's relational penal servitude. And when Paul says that we are 
in this no condemnation status, that means that we have no penal servitude with the God of the universe. It's not like he says, okay, Rod, you're, you're forgiven, but I am so mad at you for what you did. I'm, I'm not going to talk to you for a while. I'm not going to pour out my blessing on you for a while. It, it could, be, could be months, could be years. I'm so mad at you for what you did. Now, we might suppose that that would take place in God. No condemnation means that will never take place in God. There is no penal, penal servitude. This is why Eugene Peterson said this uh, in his book, The Message, his uh, translation, The Message. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. That's a great description of penal servitude. It's like I live with this low-lying black cloud of guilt that I'm not fully and finally loved and forgiven by the God of the universe. So let's, let's stick this on to a chart. Primary medium, no condemnation, is legal. Secondary meaning is experiential. Primary meaning is I'm, I'm declared not guilty, I'm declared righteous. Secondary meaning is God does not hold my sin against me ever. Primary meaning is that I've encountered justification by faith. Secondary meaning means I don't live under the black cloud of God's displeasure. That is an astonishingly freeing concept. Now, how do we know that these ideas are really present in Romans chapter 8, verse 1? Remember what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 6. We've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Well, Paul develops the idea of the oldness of the letter in Romans 7, 7 to 25. And it's a life of failure and frustration. Now what Paul is about to do in Romans 8 is describe the newness of the Spirit, especially in Romans 8, 1 through 17. Paul wants to get it into our heads that we have this radically new place with God that we can celebrate and enjoy and, and encounter with, with, his, with his, his love. Now, to whom does this no condemnation status apply? Now, this is a really important thing, thing to think about. It applies to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I, I just got to say that if you are in Christ Jesus, it applies. Obviously, if you are not in Christ Jesus, it does not apply. Now, he wants us to think about being in the sphere of Christ. Let me, let me illustrate it for you this way. Imagine that you are backpacking out in the snow like this. And you want to get to a fortress stronghold in the middle of these woods. But the weather is deteriorating. You know once you get to the stronghold, you're going to be okay. Imagine that the stronghold is Jesus' castle, is Jesus' fortress. But now you're, you're outside of the fortress. And the weather begins to deteriorate. Now we've got a, a white-out blizzard, and it's getting really cold. You take a knee to evaluate your situation. Exhaustion sweeps over you. You're hypothermic. You close your eyes. And one last message is, somebody help us. We're in trouble. 
So the Lord Jesus himself shows up in the blizzard, and he's going to rescue you. You were unable to get to him. He comes to you, and then he takes you to the fortress in the wilderness. And you wake up in that fortress, and you realize that because I am in Christ, I'm now safe. And the idea that Paul is saying here is that if you are not in Christ, i.e. not a believer in Christ, then the no condemnation benefit doesn't apply to you. If you are in Christ, then the no condemnation benefit does apply to you. And I would just say, if, you know, if, if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I, I don't know that I am in Christ, this would be a great time to do it. You transfer your trust onto the finished work of Christ, and He comes into your life, and He saves you. And one of the huge benefits is this wonderful no-condemnation status that we have, but you have to be in Christ. Now, one final question about, about verse 1, and that question is, you know, what is the takeaway for me right now? Labor Day weekend, 2016. Two quick takeaways. Takeaway number one is nothing will separate you from God's love. Nothing. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you're a parent and you've had a terrible week and your Friday was awful and you come home and you find that your children have prepared a wonderful gourmet meal, they've cleaned up the dishes after making that wonderful meal, they've rented your favorite movie, and you come home and, and you're, this is a great way to finish the week, right? It's a great way to finish the week. And you say to your children, thank you, thank you for doing this. And they say to you, it was my duty. That's kind of awkward. Your duty? Really? It's awkward. What if your children say to you, Mom, Dad, it was our pleasure. What does that do to you? Wow. They did it freely because they didn't have to. So one of the things that our no condemnation status does is it gives us a totally different motivation for loving God. No condemnation status means I can love God from the heart freely. Duty is good. I think duty is great. <laughs> a lot of times I act out of duty. If, if I need to get my motivation right, I'll, I'll start with duty. But the highest way you glorify God is because, I, Lord, I, it, I'm doing this because it's my pleasure to do it. No condemnation allows you to serve with a radically different motivation. This is the second thing. Your no condemnation status gives you confidence in the storms of life. Because guess what? In the storm of life, you, you know what question you're asking? Uh, what did I do wrong? God, did, did I do something wrong to offend you? Lord, did, did, did I screw up in some way that invited this storm of life to come into, into my experience? And you, you start questioning yourself. That's living in penal servitude. That's the very definition of living in penal servitude. A trial comes. I interpret the trial as God's displeasure. I think, oh, oh my gosh, you know, I've, I've messed up in some way. What, what, what could that be? Your no condemnation status means that rather than a trial being the displeasure of God, 
A trial is an opportunity to encounter the presence of God. And people who get this have told me, and I've experienced this myself, the trial that I went through was transformative because in the trial I encountered God's presence in ways that I hadn't ever encountered Him before. That's when you know you're encountering authentic spiritual growth. You want to encounter the Spirit? You start with the confidence of your no-condemnation status. You bask in it, you live in it, you boast in it, you champion it, you treasure it, you savor it, you love that status, and you live in that status. Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but if I were to ask you right now, how boldly do you live in your no-condemnation status? I would imagine maybe, maybe somebody might, might go like this. I doubt anybody goes, yes, I do. I'm asking you to have the same kind of, of attitude that says, yes, I do. I live in it. I boast in it. I brag about it in the, be- in the good way, not the bad way. Because that, that's the kind of emotion that Paul puts into Romans 8, 1 through 4. Now we come to a second thing that allows us to encounter the Spirit. Understand exactly how spiritual power is designed to work. Um, I know a little bit about how an engine works, but trust me, you don't want to bring your car to me. Because I don't know, I don't know much beyond, okay, that's that's the engine block. And I think that's the carburetor. That's about all I know. I don't know how power really works in an engine. How many of you know exactly how spiritual power works? Well, in order to encounter the Spirit, it's really helpful to know exactly how spiritual power is designed to work. Back to Romans chapter 8. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Let's just stop there. God has made two radical changes uh, inside us. Radical change number one is in verse two, and the change is the person under whom we operate. Prior to coming to Christ, the person under whom we operated was ourselves. We were the master of our soul. We were the captain of our fate. We were in the control center, or maybe we were controlled by another human being, Maybe we were controlled by, I I don't know, control is weird the way that it works. We were not under the control of God. Once you come to Christ, now you are under the control of a person, and the person is the Holy Spirit. Now, some background here. Paul is going to mention two laws. When he mentions the word law, he's not only referring to the Old Testament law, but he's referring to the principle of law. The principle of law is the idea that I have these rules upon which I navigate my life, the principle of law. And he's, what he's saying is that sin and living your life by your own power, sin results in this experience of death. He's not referring to physical death. He's referring to experiential separation from God and from others. So that if I I sin, it's going to affect my marriage. It'll affect my kids. 
It'll affect my relationship with God. It'll affect my relationship with myself. I might feel guilty. So the law of sin and of death is that I try to live my law in my own power by, by rules, maybe the rules in the, in the Old Testament law or rules that I set up for myself. I can't meet up to those rules, and so I encounter this estrangement with God's self and others. There's a new law, though, and the new law is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Well, why does the Spirit call that? Well, it's called that because He's the Spirit who brings life, and He's the Spirit who comes from Christ Jesus. So He is the Holy Spirit who brings life, and He comes from the risen Christ who sends the Spirit into our life the moment we come to Christ. This new law is a new person who dwells inside you. Now, let me, let me just pause on that just, just for a second because, you know, um, when Jewish people heard this, they would have thought, wait, wait a second, are you, are you telling me seriously that the Holy Spirit will be within me forever? What Jesus said in the, in the upper room discourse, that the Holy Spirit would be with us forever. For an Old Testament believer, that was mind-blowing because in the Old Testament, um, only select people were filled with the Spirit. And these select people had the Spirit temporarily. The only person who seems to have had the Spirit permanently was David. So the idea that I might have the Spirit permanently and dynamically for the rest of my life was a mind-blowing experience for most people back, back then. But that's the benefit that you have. The moment you come to Christ, the control center of your life is no longer you. The control center of your life is the Spirit who dwells inside you. Now these two laws operate. I can live my life by rules or live my life by the Spirit. What he's saying is that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So let me give you an illustration of this. Think about two laws, aerodynamics and gravity. Aerodynamics and gravity. What does the law of gravity say? The law of gravity says that if I decide to jump off the stage, I'm going to fall to the floor because bodies with mass attract each other. Um, is there a way to overcome the law of gravity? Yes. It's called the law of aerodynamics. And the law of aerodynamics says that um, this is a wing up here. And the law of aerodynamics says, since the pressure is higher beneath the wing, the wing is pushed upwards. So if I want to overcome the law of gravity, I need to have another law that kicks in, a higher law that helps me transcend that law of gravity. And so you've got this 900,000 pound piece of metal that rises up off the tarmac, how? Uh, wouldn't 900,000 pounds smack down on the tarmac? Yeah, it would, but the law of gravity uh, is overcome by the law of aerodynamics, and it lifts this massive thing up off the ground. So you think, how do I overcome my sin? 
it is so strong inside me. It seems like I'm always being pulled down. Well, a new law has got to kick in. And that new law is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And it's the spirit inside you that allows you to transcend your sinful tendencies so that you live on a different plane, a higher plane, a plane that allows you to overcome what you were before. Now, that's change number one. You got a person living inside you. A new law kicks in. Change number two is that God changes the way power operates inside us as we depend upon the Spirit. Verse three, for what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So at one point in your Christian experience, you thought, I can live the Christian life by, by my rules. I come to Christ. Okay, what do we do? Give me 10 things to do. Got it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do those things. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. Then you realize um, that's not working <laughs> because I'm, I'm trying to do those things. I can't do them. I'm trying to obey the imperatives of the New Testament in my own power. I can't do it. So, so what's, what's the answer going to be? Well, here's the problem. The Old Testament law never gave you the power to obey. It told you what was right. told you what was wrong. It never gave you the power to obey. So what you don't need is more rules. What you need is more power. More power. So, the Holy, so what God does is He sends His Son, and notice how He sends His Son. This is really important as we think about how power operates. It doesn't say that Jesus came in sinful flesh, does it? That would make Jesus sinful. It doesn't say Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. That would make Jesus non-human, like a Greek hero. It says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning he came like we are in every way, except that he was perfect. And when Jesus was on the cross, it says Jesus made an offering for sin and he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I realize we're getting into a lot of deep weeds here. This is really important because I want, I want you to notice what it, what it says. What it's saying when he condemned sin in the flesh is he deprived sin of its power. Meaning that in you, because you're in Christ, sin's power has been broken. Yeah, you're still going to sin from time to time. But the absolute power of sin has been broken. You have a choice. And that choice is a choice that says, I can go this direction or I can depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit and He will progressively give me the power to go in a different direction. Sin's absolute domination over your life was broken because of the offering that sin that Jesus made on the cross. This is the exact same teaching that Paul gives in Romans chapter 6 when he says the old self was crucified with him in order that our body 
which is dominated by sin, might be rendered powerless to enslave us. And notice the payoff in verse 4. Payoff in verse 4 is so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is an amazing thing. Notice, notice that he doesn't say the requirements, plural. That would mean, okay, I'm still kicking off every one of the Old Testament laws perfectly. I'm perfectly fulfilling the law. If it said that, it would seem that becoming a Christian makes you a super legalist, a legalist on steroids, a legalist who is super able to be obsessively legalistic and law-abiding. That's not what he says. What he says is that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. What is the requirement of the law? It's godliness. It's godliness. What's the goal of your life? To be like Jesus. What happens when you start using power the way Romans 8, 1 through 4 depicts it? You become like Jesus. That's why at the end of Romans 8, he'll say, we will be conformed to the image of his son. So the way power works in your life is that as you rely upon the power of the Spirit, you are becoming increasingly godly. Does that mean you still sin? Of course you do. Well, then how, how can I be described of as, as being godly? Because in a progressive sense, your insides are being transformed so that you are more and more like Christ. You know, before coming to know this kind of thing, you know, a lot of us were involved in do-it-yourself, try-hard Christianity. We thought, this, this is not working. And the Romans 8 experience says, there's a different path. And the different path is that I encounter the power of the Spirit, and by depending upon Him, He takes me to a different place where God's pleasure is upon me as I'm becoming more and more like Christ. Again, let's look at a chart. You know, um, in Romans 8, we have positional truth, okay? Positionally, there's been a once-for-all work of Jesus on the cross, and you have imputed righteousness. You are righteous. God regards you as being righteous. We also have this practical truth. Through the continuous operation of the Spirit, we encounter practical righteousness. So, use an illustration my love for my wife is not going to be perfect, but as I'm living by the power of the Holy Spirit, things will show up in our relationship that moves us into a fundamentally new place. I'm still not perfect. I still make mistakes, but there's a progressive growing godliness in that area of my life that she might recognize, that my kids might recognize. That's the goal, and it comes about through the power of the Spirit. Paul is, is wedding together positional truths and practical truths. And the result is through our position and our practice, we're progressively fulfilling the sense of the law so that we are becoming like Christ, resembling Him in our character and our conduct. Now that leads us to the third thing. If we're, gonna, if we're going to prepare uh, to walk in the Spirit, uh, we got to make the moment-by-moment -moment decision to walk in His power. And so, um, Romans 8, 4, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice that verb, that verb walk. That verb walk is a, a very visual verb. What, what does that word mean in context? It's about the way that you conduct your, your life. Here are four people walking down a path. What do those four people have to do as they're walking down the path hand in hand? What do they have to do? Think about this for Look at that picture and think about this for a second. You've got kids of different ages. What do you have to do if you're going to walk down that path together? Well, in some ways, it's pretty simple. You've got to put one foot in front of the other. And what happens when one of those kids says, Dad, I'm thirsty? What happens when one of those kids says, Mom, when are we going to get there? Well, you just keep on putting one foot in front of the other, and you walk down that path. Walking is an existential thing. We want the quick journey, don't we? I mean, what I really am looking forward to is, you know, that original Star Trek, Scotty, beam me up. Because I don't have to walk. I don't have to fly. I don't have to go through security. I don't have to wait in line. I don't have to, I don't have to go through diff different airports. I don't want the existential experience of getting there. But walking is a very existential daily thing. So part of walking and preparing to walk in the Spirit means that I recognize that every moment of every day, I have the opportunity to commune with the one who is inside me, who loves me, who wants to empower me, who wants to produce Christ-likeness inside me. It's a relational thing. How would you feel if, if I told you that Cindy and I never talk? We never talk. When she's sad, I offer no comfort. When she's happy, I offer no joy. Um, when she has needs, I never, I never provide them. We never, ever, ever talk. Is, you think that would be like a good marriage? <laughs> be hyper dysfunctional. So what is it like with you having a relationship with the Holy Spirit where you go through vast stretches of time where you never talk to the Spirit. You never invite Him into your joy. You never invite Him into your sadness. You never invite Him into your awkward attempts to grow in Christ. What relationship is that like? The Holy Spirit is called your comforter, and you never talk to Him. The vision is that you would bring the Spirit into every activity that you go through in your life. Your days of penal servitude are over. They're over. You don't have to worry that the Spirit is mad at you. You don't have to worry that God the Father is going to withdraw His Spirit from you like David did in Psalm 51. Your days of penal servitude are, are over. And so the challenge now is that you walk in the power of the Spirit by relating to Him multiple times during the day. How many times would that be? Would it be six times, um, 12 times, 24 times, 36 times? I'm just saying it ought to be a lot. One final thing I'll say is that um, I, I always look for gadgets to help me change my life. And I found this app called Mind Jogger, Mind Jogger. 
And I set Mind Jogger to remind me um, nine different times during the day to relate to the Holy Spirit. That has helped me. It's really helped me. Because what, it, what, it, what I, what I re, the thing buzzes on my phone, I look at it, oh gosh, you know, here, pr pray for Cindy, pray for Grace Community Church. Uh, and I've got other things that are, that are on there. I need those reminders to relate to the Holy Spirit. I need training wheels to help me move into the presence of God. Whatever works for you. My encouragement is, is that if you want to walk, if you want to encounter the Spirit, you have to actually relate to Him and talk to Him on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. With that in mind, let's, let's transition to communion. And so uh, let's, let's pray as we begin our time in communion. Father God, um, I am humbled as I reread Romans 8, 1 through 4, because it's very clear in verse 4 that you are calling us into a community of people who live in the continuous power of the Spirit. Lord, I want to be a better part of that community. I want our church to be a better part of that community. Father in heaven, I pray that you would do a work in my life, do a work in the life of our church. Lord, may we be a congregation that encounters your spirit in a powerful, existential, experiential level. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to encounter you now as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Holy Spirit, in the night, uh, the Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when Jesus broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me. He took the cup also after supper, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Take this in memory of me. At grace, we take communion by dipping the bread in the juice, and we, we kneel uh, so that we can encounter humility as we're taking communion. So you come as you feel led, and as we take communion this morning, I, I encourage you to do business with the Holy Spirit and to, uh, to tell Him that you seek to walk more closely with Him. Father God, we, uh, we just commit this time to you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you among, uh, in our presence. We welcome your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.